Hello, everyone. Welcome to the store. This is a podcast for Utah's castle country. I'm your host, Oren Stainbrook, and my guest today is Carbon County Commissioner Larry Jensen. Larry ran for office in 2018 and was reelected in 2022, so has been serving as one of our three commissioners for nearly five years now. Thanks for meeting me with, the, with me today, Larry. I really appreciate your taking the time to talk and your willingness to be so open and transparent about your work in government. So part of my intention for starting this podcast is selfish. I'm just personally really curious about what's going on in our local communities, and I want to gain a better understanding of what our issues, our challenges, and our opportunities are. Uh, but as I've I've also been wanting to better educate myself on how government operates at our local county level as well as the, the state and national levels. But as I've been paying closer attention to all of this in recent years, I've noticed that there seems to be a lot of rumors and misinformation floating around amongst the public. I think in large part due simply to a lack of easy to access reliable sources of information and a more investigative style of local journalism. I recognize there is a desire from both government officials and voters alike to have increased transparency and access to information. But here in Carbon County, aside from mostly surface level reporting from ETV News and live local radio, we don't have much in-depth media coverage of current events. So I thought that a podcast that explores some of these issues in depth and helps people to better get to know our elected officials, our community organizations, business and other leaders would be helpful and beneficial for a lot of folks. So my intention for having this conversation with you, for myself and on behalf of anyone listening, is first to get to know you, the man behind the office, a little bit better, and second to gain some insight and understanding of the inner workings of government, and third to explore some of the current issues and controversies being talked about and finally, to give you a chance to respond to some public comments and criticisms, if we have time. <laughs> okay. So, thanks again, Larry. You bet. Thank you. Right. Yeah, so to, just to start off, I'd love to know a little bit more about your life story and your background. I understand that you've lived in Carbon County your whole life. You raised nine children here and now have dozens of grandchildren, which is very impressive. But I want to try to see this place from your perspective, because I've only been here five years myself. What was it like growing up here in the era that you did, and what was so special about this place that kept you here your whole life? I know it's a lot to try to summarize, but can you give us a brief overview of your upbringing and any particularly formative experiences you can remember from your youth? Well, sure. Um, I was actually born in Provo while my dad was in school. Uh, moved here when I was wasn't one, so been here my, my whole life other than just as a baby. Um, I think uh, not having uh, known any other place to live, uh, it just grew on me. Uh, as, I, as I became uh, an adult wanting to get work here that would uh, support me and my family, um, there was a lot of construction type things going on. The, the coal mines were going really heavy. Uh, the power plants were being built. Uh, and uh, so that's kind of the era where there was just a lot of opportunity to really pick a job and, and you could go into any field because there was so much opportunity here. Um, I uh, love to be outdoors. I remember in junior high at Mount Harmon Junior High. They had career day uh, once a year and it was in that setting in, in uh, seventh, eighth or ninth grade when in the light turned on for me that I, I really wanted to not sit behind a desk um, and to be outdoors doing things and so uh, that's the, the career that I chose. I started uh, working for uh, the construction industry in high school as a, as a junior in high school and worked uh, nights and on Saturdays uh, through school and uh, then I worked another year 
uh, prior to serving a mission in the Philippines. Um, my wife and I dated in high school. So when I come back from my mission, we were married and um, I continued work in construction. Uh, the biggest part of that construction work was in uh, just heavy equipment, uh, moving dirt and in special projects for the coal mines. And we built a lot of the subdivisions in, in the county during the uh, 70s and 80s in early 90s um, we did an, an awful lot of work in the gas field uh, in the 90s in the 2000 2000 up to about 2008 um, we were directly involved in uh, most of the work uh, of over 400 of the wells that are in in the valley became very familiar with with that stuff and uh, and yeah, you know, uh, it's probably been, it was in 2014 that uh, my partner, uh, his boys wanted uh, to buy my interest in the company. And so I sold my interest that year and spent uh, four years just doing catch up work that I'd let go my whole life for myself, my, uh, my family. Um, and uh, during that time there was a vacancy that was a, going to come here on the, in, the, in the county commission. Uh, I was approached by several people who encouraged me to run for, for office. Um, the reason they felt that that would be important is just my business background and having to run a business and make it profitable enough to stay in business. Uh, you learn things that make you think in a certain way. And uh, so I felt like that was a critical decision for me uh, to step into the race. And I felt like there was things that was lacking here at the county that uh, someone with a background in business like I had would be helpful and I really can see that that has made a, a big difference here. Um, I think the reason I stayed though here in the community was mostly family. My parents lived here and my mother's still here alive. I have uh, uh, three of my four siblings live here and so we've Family is really important to us, and we spend a lot of time together. So, uh, moving away was really never an option for me. So, that's awesome. That's why I'm here. Makes sense. Yeah, I can really, I really relate to you on the the construction background, and you're wanting to to work outside, and realizing that early on. My father worked as a carpenter general contractor when I was a kid. When I was in high school, he actually worked in the, the underground mines in northeastern Nevada. So I, I too feel kind of a connection to both of those industries. But growing up, he always told me, you know, make sure you go to college because you don't want to do what I do. You don't want to you don't want to do this this hard labor. Trust me. And so I went to college and ended up studying architecture. I think I was just naturally kind of gravitated towards building um, and it took me eight years to work my way through and finish my bachelor's and then as soon as I finished I the first thing I did was go work construction and that's about all I've done since but uh, yeah I, I also kind of understand the natural leap from construction and project management and being in that business to government I think they have a lot in common just in terms of managing large complex projects with lots of moving parts and you have to adhere to a tight budget and ultimately make sure that you're profitable and you know in the end either there's really no uh halfway success it's like either you you finish the project or you don't so i think you're, yeah. you're the right person for the job i was going to ask you about about your construction career but you kind of went over that so as far as i understand this just According to my research, 
reading some news articles about you, it was about 40 years that you were in construction for Nelco contractors? Was Yeah, 38 years. Okay, 38. Yeah. And the other thing I wanted to ask you about in terms of your professional career was the 11 years you spent, I guess mostly in the 1980s, on the Price River Water Improvement District Board. Um, I wanted to ask, first of all, what what is the the River Water Improvement District Board as opposed to the district itself? Um, I'm not totally clear on the distinction between the two and how they relate to county government. Could you clarify that? Yeah, um, back in the probably the late 60s, the federal government mandated uh, through the EPA that uh, sewage could no longer be discharged into rivers. So when I was growing up, all of the sewage from all the cities uh, dumped straight into Price River. It was not treated. And so uh, by mandate, the the county here had to figure out what was going to happen with sewer. Now, um, the statute will not allow the county government to have anything to do with utilities. So <clears throat> to accommodate uh, putting a in this case, a uh, special service district together. It was something that the whole community had to be part of because the cities were part of it, uh, as well as the unincorporated part of the county. And so it was decided that this new sewer district would be stood up. And as you stand up uh, a government entity that is a taxable government entity, you have to have a controlling board, but because the county cannot be engaged in any type of uh, water, sewer, electricity, power, uh, the county probably had no choice but to recommend that this special service district is set up. So the district was set up uh, and it was formed uh, requiring someone from helper city council, someone from Price City Council, or, or a mayor, or, and someone from Wellington to sit on a five-member board. And then there were two elected positions that literally go through a, a, a countywide vote for those in the unincorporated part of the county to vote on who they want to represent them on that district. So as it was created and set up, um, the county has never had any oversight or any, um, anything to do with that district other than we, we work together uh, and uh, you know, with water and sewer issues. So originally it was just sewer district. So the, the lines were installed, uh, they went run clear through the valley. Uh, the lowest point in the valley that had people living in it was Wellington. And so below on the east side of Wellington, there was a sewer treatment plant built to carry all the sewer from the entire valley um, into that plant to be treated and the water then is treated and then put back into the river and a cleaner state. Um, during the 70s and the 80s, when the power plants were being built and the mines were gearing up, uh, there was a lot of people that moved here uh, to build the power plants and to, to work in the coal mines. And so there was, a, there was a big boom of housing. And at that time, Price City uh, was supplying water to everybody, Wellington City, uh, everybody in the county, except Helper. Helper had their own water system. And they reached a point where Price City, by statute, could not allow any more outside hookups to their system. Um, they have to protect that water for the citizens of the city and not oversell uh, what they have to uh, anyone else. Uh, 
So it, it became obvious that the water shortage was creating a huge problem. So the Price River Water Improvement District, who only handled sewer, uh, decided that they needed to build a water treatment plant and supply water for everyone outside of the city limits as all through the county. So the water treatment plant was built. Uh, and so all of us today that live outside of Helper City, outside of Price City, outside of Wellington City, um, we, 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 our water is supplied by Price River Water Improvement District. And I might mention that, that Wellington City, all of their water is supplied by Price River Water Improvement District as well. So that's how, why they were created. And so on our tax notice, uh, there is a tax that everyone pays to the Price River Water Improvement District, and that's for the sewer plant and an additional amount of tax for the unincorporated residents who are hooked onto their water system to help maintain and, and pay for the the initial investments and, and the ongoing maintenance of their facilities. And you notice that this year they have uh, uh, gone through their, or in the middle of their truth and taxation to raise the tax to everyone um, in the county. And I think they had their meeting last week. And so there will be a vote taken at some point in the near future, whether they pass that rate tax raise or not. Yeah, I went to that public hearing. It was really interesting, and I guess part of the the reason that they're needing to raise the tax rate now and and generate more tax revenue is because they have been sort of falling behind for they said I think 19 years that they've avoided increasing taxes, and now it's, it sounds like it's kind of coming back to to haunt them a little bit, and they're now needing to make such a large increase that it's upsetting to a lot of people, but I think uh, I, sh I need to interview somebody on the board soon and get a yeah. more in-depth story. And, and you know, I, th this is a, a, a serious problem for our valley. Um, holding back and not raising taxes is a very detrimental thing, and if you're going to push maintenance down the road, uh, someday it's going to be too big of a deal and so you see roads in Price City that are on they're they're falling apart um, that's the same problem they have not raised taxes in Price City for over 40 years so the money it takes to upgrade water systems before you redo the road and you all drive past all the water leaks and the potholes in the roads and the repairs when they have a water leak, you can see where the lines are deteriorating. Some of them are over a hundred years old. So as bad as it is to have taxes raised, we, we have to, or, or someday we just don't have the, the service that we really expect and demand from these public entities. Right. Yeah. I think it seems like taxes are, tend to be kind of the heart of a lot of the drama and the controversy. And so that is one of the things that I'd like to spend more time on discussing in depth over time with people like you. And I hope that you know, we could do this once or twice a year and just in an effort to try to help people to better understand how things work. Because I, I, you know, based on my observations at that public hearing last week, I feel like there's just a lot of misunderstanding and a, a lack of knowledge and not because people are are ignorant it's just hard to conceptualize sometimes how these things work it's because they're they're complicated but uh, so I'll, I'll talk with somebody from the river water board and we can have another conversation in the future but today I, I just kind of want to get to know you a little bit more and get a get an overview of your your time in office so far so next question is, according to ETV News back in 2018, when you were first running for the commission seat, you said you had poured over the county's financial records going back as far as 2008 to try to make sense of the budget and I assume get some insight about what you were getting yourself into. 
I imagine your experience working for and then helping to run a large construction business taught you a lot about managing complex projects with big budgets and and I see how how that skill set was very relevant to the work of a commissioner so that seems clear but um, I'm wondering what sort of a situation you know just in terms of the finances and the budget did you see yourself inheriting were there specific problems you wanted to try to solve did you think things had been running fairly smoothly up till that point or were there issues that you you were identifying um, prior to your taking office and part of why I asked this question is at a that at a recent commission meeting I went to, Commissioner Martinez had mentioned, made some comment about how you, you current commissioners have worked hard to knock down silos or kingdoms that had previously existed in county government. So mm -hmm. I was kind of curious what he meant by that. But um, well, maybe first the the question about um, the situation that that we were in in 2018. Uh, in 2016, I had been asked by the commissioners to sit on the uh, Recreation Transportation Special Service District. That district was formed under the umbrella of the county uh, to as a pass-through entity for the mineral lease money from both coal and natural gas that comes from the royalty payments uh, that the gas companies have to pay to um, the, the state or the federal government. And if those monies came directly to the county, the county would not qualify for, for our payment in lieu of tax that the federal government gives to us and also the state gives to us because of all the property they own in our county that we cannot tax. So they compensate us a little in those, both from the federal government and from the state government in those funds of payment in lieu of tax. And because there had to be a separate entity that the mineral lease money flowed through, that special service district was was set up and it has a board of directors uh, that uh, approve the, the expenses of all of those monies that come in and uh, having worked in the gas field and the coal industry I, I knew of the mineral lease money and I knew that those dollars uh, are what's called soft dollars if, if gas is being sold at a low price, you get a small amount of royalty money coming in, and if the price of gas or coal goes up, you get more. So the, those uh, amount, amounts of money that come into that special service district, they can vary, they can totally shut off. Like for instance, Lila Canyon is shutting down. They're in Emory County, but that coal mine now will shut down and all of the revenue that Emory County receives from the coal that's mined in that mine is going to go to zero, goes away. So you have to be really careful uh, with those dollars that are coming in. And in 2008, the reason I go back to 2008 is because on this special service district, I could see the records of all of the mineral lease money through the history of it being in, in existence. And I looked and in 2008, there was a peak uh, of dollars that came in and it was uh, about $8 million. It, it had been more than that at times, but from 2008 to 2016, when I went onto the board uh, for the, the Recreation Transportation Special Service District, the income had decreased down to about $3 million. And the trajectory of that, in my experience, was that that was going to continue to drop because the gas field was estimated to have a life of 15 to 20 years. And we were already 20 years into the life of the field and it was very predicted that that gas would, would run out 
And so the amount of money coming into that special service district was, was declining. And uh, I had assumed for many years that the county had uh, used that money as it came in. And that was kind of told to me in settings by uh, those that were there. And when I came onto the board in 2016, I found out that they had been borrowing money for all of the buildings and for Nine Mile Canyon Road and for Consumers Road that went up to a coal mine. And those were all in the form of 20-year loans. And the special service district had committed $2.6 million a year to pay for those loans. Well, I'm sitting on the special service district now and I can see that there's not gonna be $2.6 million. And it was my estimate that in 2019 that those dollars coming into the special service district would not be enough to even make the loan payment. And uh, as it turns out, it was in 2018. So in that setting, that's when I decided my business background probably would help. And so there's no way to cut the loans off. The county had already cut back. They had whittled and whittled and whittled for several years uh, before I took office and there was no more room to cut. So how now do we operate if that special service district is short, that means the county is going to have to come up with whatever the shortage is uh, that they're unable to. So that's the, the background and the reason uh, from that perspective. And so we, we inherited um, a very large debt as we took office. Um, uh, and we're okay. We've made adjustments um, and we're doing all we can to um, now shift. Now we get into the taxes, let's wait on that. Uh, but we, we've, got, we've got an issue where the income coming in, uh, all of the different sources of income, they're, they're limited. They're not, there's no endless supply. And when we reach this point where that special service district uh, is out of money, then, then what do we do? And so that's, we've tried to make adjustments so that we are not going to put the county in risk of default on loans. Um, I've had people say we should default on the loans. I'm never gonna do that. We're gonna fight and make sure we we take care of our commitment. And I wasn't in the room when decisions were made along the way, and I found that that's, that's critical. Uh, it's easy to point fingers at everybody uh, and find way, reasons to today why we're in, in the situation we're in, but uh, unless you're sitting in the room having to make decisions, you don't know all of the background and and uh, information so it's wise not to get get too quick uh, to judge why decisions are are made the way they are and we're going to be fine and some some new growth here we need um, some new industry those efforts continue right Thanks for explaining that. Yeah, that's really informative, even for me. Um, I mean, I'm, I've been working hard to try to understand all this, wrap my head around it, and it does seem very complicated, but I think it's worth just pointing out that you saw yourself inheriting a particularly complicated situation, and you knew that you were gonna have to make some hard decisions, and that you were gonna be the one kind of stewarding the county through these growing pains. So it, it sounds like it wasn't, you, you knew it was going to be hard, but you were, you were willing to kind of put yourself in the fire. Yeah, and, and I also was very aware that it's very hard 
for people to understand because these issues are complex, like you said, and there's more to it than just some, some face value. And uh, so I have to, I have to explore every angle before I make a decision, but I have to not be afraid to make the right decision. And even if it makes everybody mad, still have to make that decision. And I might, a bright point really is that as the price of um, gasoline, diesel fuel, and, uh, and natural gas has gone up the last year and a half, the amount of money coming in to the special service district has gone way above what they estimated. So they're able to bring in uh, some extra and those, those dollars are being spent very carefully uh, with that board. Uh, they're tucking the money away uh, for the day when, again, when that gas field west and north of town uh, runs out of gas. I expect that the the volume of gas uh, that comes out of those gas wells will just continue to dip, uh, go down over uh, the years and to, to where they are out of gas and they'll just plug and abandon all of them. No, no clue when that is. They've already lived past their estimated life. Hmm. Okay. So speaking of the budget, I feel like we could spend a whole hour just diving into that. And I, I've looked at it and I see there are seemingly, you know, hundreds of line items on that budget, but I'm just wondering if you could just briefly tell us, so we have some sense of how much money we're talking about, like what is the total budget in dollars roughly? And what are the, the main, the, the, where do the biggest chunks of that money go, such as the school district, the sheriff's office, and about how, what percentage of the total budget is, is going to those main pieces of the pie? Okay, off the top of my head, we collect $17 million in, in property tax. So you get a, your property tax notice, all of that um, brings in $17 million. Um, Carbon County, uh, would get $5.6 million from the what's called the general fund. And so that comes from everybody in the cities and everybody in the county. So there's one portion of that that goes towards the general operation of the county where we provide services for everybody in the county. Um, then there is a second part to that that only applies to people who live outside the city limits in the unincorporated part of the county and that tax is called the municipal service tax and that tax pays for the sheriff's department the road department um, and those niche services that we only provide for the unincorporated part of the county and uh, that tax uh, was raised in 2019. We began paying that tax in 2020. So that was the point in history where there was a 733% increase in that fund because the county had been using the mineral lease money to fill that $2.3 million that it we were raising 300,000 in that fund since 1986. But in 2019, we were just short. We had no money for the sheriff's department. We had no money for uh, the road department uh, coming from, from the county. So that tax was raised. That was a big hit in 2019. So that's the tax that comes to the county. 54% of that 17 million goes to the school district. Uh, there's a, I don't remember the, the amount, but there's a part that goes to the Price of Water Improvement District to take care of our sewer uh, and, and the water for outside the city limit people. There is also a, water, a carbon water conservancy district. There's a tax that goes into a, a fund that takes care of the Schofield Dam, the maintenance 
on, on the dam. And then there are, there's a bunch more of small taxes that the state uh, pulls off of that $17 million. So one thing that people don't fully grasp is when, when your personal income tax goes up, it seems like the county is getting more money. And that is false. We don't get any more money than we got the previous years. We get uh, that $5.6 million and that's it. So uh, it, the, the challenge uh, that the reason that our taxes are going up is because when you consider the coal mines that have closed, that used to pay tax. And uh, for instance, Skyline Mine is still in operation. Their tax is a little over $1 million of that $17 million. So if we had multiple mines operating and being taxed, uh, they would be paying a large part of that $17 million. And when the power plant at Castle Gate was still operating, they were helping pay a big chunk of that $17 million. But they're all gone. And so the taxing entities, by law, still are to get that same amount. So our homes now are the only thing left to tax in some instances. So that shifts uh, to the homeowner. Yeah, and makes it easy to see why it's so confusing and frustrating for people, especially I've noticed elderly folks, a lot of whom have been here for decades, even their whole lives, that uh, the public hearing for that 700 plus percent increase back in 2019 was the only commission meeting that I had been to prior to this year because everybody in my neighborhood in Kenilworth was talking about it. And I remember that this whole building was packed with people and a lot of people spoke. And uh, as I've thought more about it in the years since, I just feel like it's just a really tricky situation in a rural area that's sparsely populated. You take Kenilworth, for example, built as a coal mining camp, but sort of abandoned by the coal company that built it. And then, you know, people want people value the, the peace and the quiet and that it's a little bit isolated and rural and off the beaten path but then you consider the miles of infrastructure that are needed to support this little neighborhood of 200 people and that per capita the costs are really high for even just something like the snowplow so yeah i i don't know i don't necessarily know what the answer is or or what i would do if i i had any say in the matter but i i feel like i understand why you know dis, it's seemingly disproportionately high taxes for some of these unincorporated areas versus you know what it would cost to provide similar services if you live in a highly populated area but um you know yeah it's another thing we could just mention you know with one of the uh, things for those that are on fixed incomes, there is what's called an abatement uh, that those folks should come to the county building, to the clerk's office, and apply uh, for what's called an abatement or a, um, um, forget the term, but so if, if, if you're a veteran or uh, for example, there's there's a, uh, a deal that I just was helping with, uh, a disabled veteran that his taxes are completely waived. He does not pay taxes. Uh, and based on your income, uh, the tax can be lowered. Uh, and um, so it, people need to, to look at that and come in and and make sure that they, uh, whether they can qualify or not for, uh, for this uh, tax reduction. But you have to realize that needs to be done at the appropriate time. You need to do that early in the year. Uh, so there's, there are points during the year where things have to happen by state law. And if, if people come in late, then legally we really aren't supposed to be making these adjustments. Right. 
Okay, we've got about 15 minutes left. I wanted to give you a chance to address some of these criticisms that I've heard of, of you sure. and the other commissioners. Uh, I recently posted a discussion question on Facebook asking, I was just, just curious, asking, you know, what, what do people see as the, the main challenges facing our communities? And, or put another way, what would people like to see happen in the near future to improve our communities and quality of life? And there were a lot of comments on this post and some people mentioned mentioned the commissioners and so I thought I would just read some of these comments and you could respond. Um, one person said, our county commission is way out of control. We could have had more industry come in. They say we don't have the water, but yet they want all of these subdivisions made. If it doesn't line their pockets, somehow they don't want it, end quote. So there's a lot to respond to in that comment and some of this you know, it just who knows how how much this person is really paying attention versus just wanting to vent. I don't know, but um, so I'll come back to the accusation that you're lining your pockets. I would love for you to be able to respond to that too. But just in terms of growth and development, what do you think are our main opportunities, and what are the main barriers? Is the availability of water a hindrance to new industries coming in to set up shop, and it, is it also restricting our population growth, growth and the building of new housing developments? So in, in, the, uh, in the area of water, uh, it, it has been a struggle uh, over the past couple of years where those who own water uh, don't wanna sell it. So folks that come into the area that wanna build a home, uh, if you live in the county, the unincorporated part of the county, uh, Price River Water Improvement District requires that you turn one acre foot of Schofield Reservoir water over to them to supply water for your home. Um, and everything that's been noised and talked about is just talk. So no one has not come because of water and we've aggressively uh, worked at this and uh, in fact the county has uh, uh, secured a very large quantity of water uh, this year and uh, we put uh, 50 shares of water in availability for folks who want to build a home and we've had uh, four or five of those shares of water that have been purchased from the county for a home. So that is untrue that that's an issue. Now for a developer who comes in and wants to build um, a subdivision that maybe they're gonna put in 20 lots or, or 30 lots, they would have to come up with that many shares of, of reservoir water. Um, the challenge is that um, those who own the water probably would sell it, but they want a lot of money for it. A lot more than we have been used to paying here. So everyone who has needed water has been able to buy it. Now they're paying a lot more than they wanted to, but it is available. And when there is no water available for homes particularly, we have it and have provided that for people. Um, Industry-wide, uh, there are, we have, we have several big jags of, of water that are available. And uh, the Water Conservancy District, who controls and, and maintains the, the Schofield Reservoir, they own a, uh, about 700 shares of water. That can be made available for industry. Um, the county now owns, uh, uh, we will own about 950 shares of water and we utilize uh, less than 200 of those and so all of that is available for industry and we're in the process of buying a, a large piece of property out uh, along Ridge Road and along the railroad tracks that uh, is intended use will be for industrial growth um, there are things in, in play right now. Uh, the biggest challenge right now is that those 
industries that want to move in, they struggle to put their finance package together. And two of the four that we're working closely with are coal related. And what we're finding from them is that as they go out now to investors to invest in their, um, in their project, if it has anything to do with coal, uh, the United States lending institutions don't want anything to do with coal. So that's, that's been a, a struggle. But we are actively engaged daily uh, in everything we can to expand local businesses, which there's uh, a lot going on with that. We've had um, The last three years, half a million dollars has been used for grant money uh, for local businesses for expansion of their businesses. And uh, those expansion projects have employed almost 100 people that weren't employed prior. So these expansion projects that we've engaged in uh, using money that the state has given us for that purpose so we're not using our local tax dollars uh, to match money that a business would put towards an expansion um, so there's there's a some things that the companies we're dealing with they really don't want to talk about yet so we have to just continue to help them without making uh, a public announcement of what we're even working on so again back to that individual wrapped three different things into one short comment that all three are very complex and the comment was very inaccurate mm -hmm. okay so i'll ask you about the other the other okay. part because i want to try to shed light on this for for your sake and everyone's sake uh, to try to clear the air as much as i can surrounding these rumors and accusations that there's any kind of corruption or financial conflict of interest in our local government. And I'm, I'm just curious about where this perception that you or the other commissioners are, you know, quote, lining your pockets might be coming from. So I thought, I mean, first of all, could you just tell us what the compensation is for a commissioner in terms of base salary and benefits? And I, I didn't look this up, but, but I heard it, that the commissioners had given themselves a raise at some point in recent years. Did that happen? And if so, what was the rationale behind that? There's not been a raise uh, that I'm aware of. We, I have not uh, done that. Um, prior to me coming in, I, I don't know. When I took office, the salary is $52,000 uh, plus the benefit package. I think that, that it's estimated it's $80,000 with uh, the in insurance and the um, um, retirement with the Utah retirement system. So every public employee in the state of Utah uh, is given um, a small part of what you earn uh, goes into a retirement fund for the individual and it's about 2% a year of your, your salary. So when, if I retired today, I'd get $400 a month from serving here. Um, Full-time employees, they would, it's, it's a, uh, you know, it's probably 60 or 70% of their normal income that they would receive in retirement. I haven't looked at it that that close. Uh, I I'm old enough. I'm not on the insurance here, so um, the uh, so there's been two cost of living increases, and I think that uh, currently the commissioners are making fifty six thousand dollars, fifty five or fifty six. Okay. Uh, if it comes out to if you figure it by the hour, we're paid twenty five dollars an hour. Yeah. And uh, if I put in more than 40 hours a week, I'm, I probably make about $18 an hour mm -hmm. for four and a half years. So this is the worst paying job I've ever had. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it seems Except like in it. high school. <laughs> and you do seem very busy. I see you out all over the place uh, at, 
every day of the week. You're you're always at some meeting and you know see stopping to talk to people all the time. I feel like yeah. there's those are just kind of the hidden uh, tasks and requirements of the job. You you got to spend a lot of time just just talking to people and, and hearing them. Um, so. Uh, in terms of this conflict of interest, are you aware of any potential conflict of interest due to business involvement or investments that any of our elected officials have? There are none. Uh, the only thing even potentially remotely uh, that that could have even been conceived as a conflict of interest was uh, Commissioner Martinez works for Bodeck Electric. And Bodeck Electric has done work for the solar field uh, that was put in down in Wellington. And uh, there's, uh, having been involved with it from the very beginning, uh, the, the um, folks that built the solar field, that project was put out to bid. Bodeck Electric was hired to do a small part of that work and uh, had nothing to do with Commissioner Martinez being on the commission. Um, it was a straight up competitive bid process and so and there is nothing. There isn't, it, it's just the opposite of what people would conceive because why would, why would we do that? We're required by law in a commission meeting when decisions are made to uh, Make, a, make it public if there's a conflict of interest. And that has happened several times, uh, but it had nothing to do with projects. It was always um, little things, and when that occurs, that commissioner cannot vote uh, on, on what is being presented. So th those are watched very closely. They're punishable by law and so that it's just totally false. Right, yeah, now, there's no way, no way to, you know, there's just no way to, to prove it. It's very easy to make the accusation. Very, very easy. Yep. Uh, we live in a small community, and so we have a lot of boards who make decisions for, for all of us, and school board, every one of us, are required by law and every year we have to go through about uh, it's a part of an hour training that goes over that and teaches new appointed or elected officials what the law is and if there's a conflict of interest you have to make it known at the beginning of the meeting and you're not allowed to speak about it nor to vote on it all right that's good for people to know okay uh, we're almost out of time, and if you have to run at any point, no, one no more. problem. But my last question is: uh, so this is I had a much larger kind of lead into this question, but basically I'm just going back to the, the conversation about growth and development. I wonder if, uh, at least my my guess is that not everyone finds growth to be necessarily desirable. I've heard. Here and there, people make comments like, hey, we don't want price to become like Moab, you know, Main Street clogged with traffic, or we don't want Helper to become the next Park City, just another overpriced playground for the rich where people are building all these Airbnbs and pricing out the working class renters. So I'm just wondering if you could respond to that. You know, in your opinion, is growth and uh, development uh, desirable and do you see downsides to that growth and how do we mitigate against those downsides? There's two sides to everything and uh, I think first off when when you talk about growth um, a lot of people are okay with growth but they don't want it in their backyard but they don't own the backyard someone else owns it and has every right to develop it so we cannot stop, in many cases, someone who owns property, who is willing to follow the Carbon County Development Code, or each city has their own development code, and if someone follows those codes, you can't stop them from developing. So the notion that, you, that we can stop something from happening is, is not accurate. 
So we're trying to mitigate on our end to make sure that where the growth occurs that it's done in the, in the proper way and, uh, and to have the least impact on people. The other side of that is, do we need growth? Absolutely we need growth or our taxes will continue to burden us. The growth will help. And the growth needs to be though, not just in people moving here, it's in industry that comes here. And those industries need workers. And if they're not local, they'll need homes to build or homes to live in. And even for our kids in high school, as they graduate from high school, if they want to live here and, and work, we need jobs for them. And if there are jobs available, there's got to be some housing. So where does that, where does that occur? I cannot see a day when Main Street and Price looks like Moab. They're trying to get it to look like something. Helper, we don't know. Now, we have no control over Helper City. They're, they control their destiny. We work close with them and help guide and, uh, and work with them, but we have no say in what they do, nor do we have in Price City, Wellington, or East Carbon. So we, can, we have say over what happens in the unincorporated part of the county. There's plenty of room for growth. We're doing everything to make sure there's water for those people when they come here. Um, and if, if people are against growth, the downside to that is that the taxes are, are going to be a bigger burden than we really believe they should be and want to be. And it's easy for some folks to say, I don't want any growth, but there's a lot of families who live here who want their kids to stay home when they get uh, out of school and get married and have a family. So if we make no growth effort, um, the turnover from normal jobs in our area, we don't have enough people retiring uh, to fill those jobs with all the kids that are in high school. So we were, we were, uh, the, the saying is the, the, the biggest thing we export from Carbon County is our kids. Hmm. Yeah. So we're, we, uh, bringing new industry here is, is not easy. It takes a lot of time. Um, it may not fully happen while I'm here, but our efforts have to continue to be moving towards the day when that happens. So we, we, we are making progress. And, and not only that, but just internally, the growth of local businesses has been pretty significant uh, in the last uh, four years. It happens, but most people don't, they don't see it. They don't know that it's even happening. But if you stop and really uh, look at it, through a desire of wanting to see it, you'll begin to see um, that there's stuff popping up here and there. And some, sometimes the expansion is inside of a building, you don't really see it, but that expansion adds another employee or two. Intermountain Electronics is a, is a big one. Uh, they're still looking for 100 people. Hmm. So some, you know that are in score you don't want to go into that type of work but um, so those are yeah. things we're trying to help industry as they as they come in and talk to us there's several things they want to know are we welcome is the permit process going to take us a long time uh, and um, is there housing? Those are the, the things that they worry about. And if we have to say no to all three of those, then they just turn around and leave and they don't have any interest in coming here because they don't want to be um, met with opposition. Right. And I don't feel like 
people are against the, the growth in that way, but we have to have both um, some expansion and we're going to have neighbors. Yeah. I've lived I've lived through it three times, <laughs> so I get it. And I lived with nobody in front of me and nobody behind me, and I loved it. Well, now I have people behind me and I have people in front of me. <laughs> yeah. So uh, I guess one thing that's that's also been very helpful for me is that I've I've lived a, a pretty broad life, and when people come in my office here and have complaints, it doesn't matter what it is. I can say I have the very same thing in my neighborhood and uh, you're not alone in some things we can help and fix and some things it's inappropriate for us to be engaged in and um, we can't fix everything and the county employees they have jobs to do and rather than cutting the neighbors weeds with our road department machinery. I want the road department working on our roads. So your neighbor's weeds might grow. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's difficult to make your neighbor cut his weeds. Yeah. Even though there may be an ordinance in place. But if we have to try to get that taken care of, that, that involves law enforcement, it involves the judges. They're already overworked and underpaid. And so sometimes we just make a decision we're not going to we're not going to fight that battle. So yeah. Well, thanks so much, Larry. Yeah, I know you got to get to your next meeting, so I'll, I'll let you go. But I hope we can talk again sometime Absolutely. and dive sure. further into some of these issues. It's fascinating, and I really appreciate you taking the time. Thank you. Appreciate your desire to to learn and, and share. Yeah. All right. Have a great day. Thanks.